Please open your Bibles to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. Our study tonight will be verses 1 to 53, which is the speech of Stephen before the Sanhedrin in his own defense. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to, going to read the end of this sermon. If I read the whole sermon, it will use more of my sermon time than I wish to give because I'm going to be reading it as I go. We will read the whole text in careful attention, but we will mainly do it as we go. So I'm going to begin at verse 51. I'm going to read verses 51 to 53. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Let us pray. Uh, Father, what a thrill it is to be able to devote our time to such a remarkable chapter of your word and this address, this sermon given by your servant Stephen before the Sanhedrin. Father, give us eyes to hear, see, give us ears to hear. Make us wise concerning the great salvation you have pre prepared from the days of the patriarchs and you have declared to us in Scripture. And Lord, which you have fulfilled in our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. In any courtroom drama, there is nothing more exciting than when the defendant takes a stand. And defense lawyers apparently often advise against the defendant speaking, the accused speaking in his or her own defense. The stakes are very high if you're going to do so. Any mistake can be very costly. In fact, when a guilty verdict comes in, often viewers will look back and say, you know, it was the testimony of the accused that did it. Something about the way he came across was not right. He wasn't consistent. He certainly wasn't persuasive. He didn't have his facts straight. And it may be argued that in the trial of Stephen, the deacon Stephen, before the Jewish ruling Sanhedrin, that his defense speech recorded in Acts 7, it may be that that was a mistake. After all, the chapter ends with him receiving the guilty verdict, which is immediately uh, fulfilled as he is put to death by stoning. Moreover, in the minds of many critics, his performance on the stand was in fact severely lacking. Perhaps the most common charge against Acts 7 is that Stephen was tedious and illogical. The famous playwright George Bernard Shaw describes him as giving an oration to the council in which he inflicted on them a tedious sketch of the history of Israel with which they were presumably as well acquainted as he was. Even John Calvin admitted the questionable first impression given by Stephen's oration. Calvin says Stephen's answer may at first seem silly. He began at the beginning, but then went on and on, making almost no mention of the matter in hand. Calvin points out there can be no greater fault than to say a lot, but wander from the subject. And yet Calvin is quick to point out that that first impression is in fact wrong. And he says, whoever studies this long speech carefully will find nothing superfluous in it. Stephen was accused of trying to overthrow religion. Therefore, he strenuously insisted that he was still true to the God of their fathers and that they had always worshipped. 
Now, the purpose of Stephen's long oration was to defend himself against the charges of the Sanhedrin, which were mainly two. And because there's two charges, this is really a two-point sermon that he gives. The first is he committed blasphemy against Moses and the law. The second was that he had spoken against the holy temple in Jerusalem. In Acts 6.11, they said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. That was charge one. They added in verses 13 to 14, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now that last statement shows that Stephen was really accused because of his devotion to Jesus Christ, against whom these same charges substantially had been leveled. And therefore, standing before the court, he set out not so much to defend himself. In fact, as we go along, we will see that he says things that he can anticipate in their eyes will be incriminating. Now, his actual point is to defend the gospel, to defend the word of God and its message of redemption that is culminating in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let me, before I read the passage, let me make some observations. First, this is a very long oration. It is, in fact, the longest by far speech or sermon that is found in the book of Acts. And we may ask, why did Luke write this down in such detail? We, we, in, in the other sermons, we tend to get what seems to be a synopsis. But here, we get more or less the whole thing. Now, now why is that? Well, one is because Luke is a very scrupulous historian. You go, where did he get this material? Well, be from members of the Sanhedrin who later were converted. Let me give you the name of one of them. Saul of Tarsus was there. And undoubtedly he remembered it, but there were others. Maybe Nicodemus was there. This is right out, this is in those early days. Uh, Nicodemus would still have been a member of the Sanhedrin. And, and so he likely got verbatim versions of the speech, not to mention the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he carefully records it. But secondly, the length of the speech indicates its significance. Up till this time, you have the, Jew, the Christians dwelling in Jerusalem, and they're operating within the umbrella of Judaism. They probably would have been considered a sect of Judaism. You know, the Romans considered them that way for a long time. It's a kind of Judaism. Now, the Sanhedrin was starting to doubt if that was possible, but the Christians thought of themselves in that way. But see, that's all going to change after this sermon and, and the stoning of Stephen. This sermon brings the end of the toleration on the part of the Jewish authorities towards the Christian sect. What follows is the, the severe persecution that will become so significant. But, this, but something similar happens on the Christian side. Now Stephen is going to make clear that this rapprochement between the Christians and the Jewish temple establishment is doomed to failure the unfolding of the actual redemptive place of the temple in the light of Scripture was changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus coming, his, and then particularly his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the fact of the matter was that changed the place, the, 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 the manifestation of the biblical idea of God dwelling within his people. And so this is, in fact, a very significant speech in that respect. I think as well for Luke, uh, this speech must have been very personally precious to him because of the significance 
of Acts chapter 7 to the Gentile converts who later on come to Christianity. Now, you said it's surprising because all he talks about here is Israel. Yes, but the effect of his speech is to show that the temple institution has been set aside, that now it's Jesus Christ dwelling in his people wherever they are by means of the Holy Spirit. That realization opens the door, plays a role in what becomes a big issue in the book of Acts. The full embrace of the Gentile believers in the church without first becoming Jews. I think the significance in all those ways accounts for the length of the speech. Now, secondly, you'll realize that the style is very different from what we get elsewhere. What you tend to get from Peter, we've seen this already several times, is he'll quote a passage, then he'll give a lot of sermon. It's kind of the way most of us do it. I do this. I read a passage and I unfold the passage. And so you get a little bit of text, you get a lot of sermon. That's not what you get from Stephen. You get a lot of text. And then you get, and, 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 and he's a selective rendering of it. And then he makes comments at the end. Now, partly that may be because of his Hellenistic background. He is not a Jew. He doesn't come from that. that he's, of course, he's a Jew uh, religiously, but he's part of the Hellenistic Jew. That's what I meant to say. And they have a Greek influence that may affect it. But I think another explanation is that Stephen is adopting another homiletical tradition, namely that which is seen in some of the Psalms. Specifically, I would reference Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. These are the kinds of Psalms that when we get to them in our weekly singing of the Psalter, you go, "Uh uh-oh, we're in for a long one here. I think Psalm 78 is a couple of pages. I think last time we sang it, we shamefully broke it up into two weeks because it's so long. And Psalm 78 is about David and, and the reign of David, and God fulfills that, pointing forward to the Christ. And, and, and uh, uh, it's a lot of text making a few points, but it does so very persuasively. The accumulated effect of scriptural recitation. This is what's going on. This is an overview of redemptive history that Stephen is going to give. It is going to point forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, a third thing we want to say is that this speech uh, has much to say about the apostolic understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're living in uh, an unusual time in Christian history when a lot of believers think that the Old Testament is fundamentally different from the New Testament. There's very little Old Testament preaching in the church, not this church, but in, in the church broadly. There are some, the dispensationalists, who basically teach that when you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading somebody else's religious experience. What we're going to find is the exact opposite view in the sermon given by Stephen. He sees a fundamentally organic connection between the Old Testament and what they're now living is the New Testament, the coming of Jesus Christ. The salvation that is in Jesus Christ is is fundamentally one that's organically growing out of. The, The Old Testament expectation is finding its fulfillment in the coming of the promised Messiah. It's one redemptive story culminating in the coming of the Messiah. It's noteworthy in in verse 37, I believe. uh, uh, He actually makes the connection between the Old Testament assembly and the church. Yes, he says this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. Uh, The word for congregation he uses, it's in the Old Testament, it's assembly. But the word he uses for the congregation is ecclesia, which is the New Testament word for the church. And so both in the macro way and in some of the micro issues, Stephen is very clearly seeing the Bible as, in the words of Bruce Milne, charting a single road 
of Old Testament promise reaching New Testament fulfillment. Augustine is the one who said the Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in bloom. How important it is for Christians today to realize the organic connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, I would go so far as to say, while it is not completely explicit in Stephen, what you have here is a beginning of covenant theology. He's going to see the progress of biblical understanding in terms of the unfolding of God's respective covenants all joined together. As Paul will say, they all find their yea and amen. Their promise is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Well, Stephen has, I'm going to say, four aims in this sermon. And the first is this. Stephen is going to argue that the charges against him are false, especially the charge of blasphemy. One thing we'll see as we go through it is that he's, he's not blasphemous. He's extraordinarily respectful of the, of the Bible, of the temple, of Moses and the law of Moses. There's nothing here, anything other than full respect. And John Stott says his concern is to demonstrate that his position, his message, his gospel of Jesus Christ, far from being blasphemous because disrespectful of God's word, is actually highly honoring to it. Everything he says about the law and the temple, especially what he's saying that points to Jesus, is fully justifiable by the Old Testament. That's maybe the most explicit aim of Stephen's sermon. He is innocent because what he's saying is what the Old Testament has taught. Now, secondly, he's going to more than insinuate that the Sanhedrin and the Judaism of that time that they represented had, in fact, adopted a false, even idolatrous view of the temple that needs to change. And we'll see that develop. Ah, This is where he's incriminating himself a little bit because they're saying he spoke against his temple. He say it's going to be torn down. Well, yeah. Uh, his teaching in here is going to clearly point out that the temple is not to tell us of God's redemptive purpose, that the temple is the great theme of, of God dwelling with his people. And, and it was their view that they had reached the tell us. This was the always intended result. This is beautiful building. And oh, it was in their day that the temple of Herod was spectacular. I, I think it's fair to say that never had the temple building itself been more impressive than it was at this time. And they were so devoted to it all. And yes, Stephen is going to say to them, it's day has passed with the coming of Jesus. We'll talk about that. Third, he's going to point out that the nation of Israel stands guilty before God because it is Israel who always rebelled against God, against his law and against his prophets. And then fourth, that this culminates in the Sanhedrin themselves. They are the guilty ones. They are the blasphemers. They are the transgressors of God's law. Why is that? Because they crucified Jesus Christ. The promised one spoken of by Moses and the prophets. And Stephen, it's interesting, Stephen never gets there. He doesn't get to complete his sermon because they kill him. This is what every, every preacher expects is going to happen sometime in his life. They're just going to stop him in the sermon and they're going to stone him to death. That's just literally what they do. But the clear purpose he's moving towards is a call for them to repent and to be forgiven by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to preach this text in two points then. And the first is the question, did Stephen blaspheme the temple? 
And he's going to challenge from the scripture the beliefs concerning the temple that were prominent in that day. In fact, these beliefs about the temple he's going to show were standing in the way of a believing reception of Jesus. Bruce Nilne puts it this way. The Sanhedrin had succumbed to a form of religion in which humanity, in the shape of revered tradition, human acts of piety, ethnic superiority, and the manipulation of political and ecclesiastical power, that that human religion had become the dominating center. The wood had become hidden by the trees. Stephen sees beyond all this to the glory and service of the living God, the infinite I am who is forever present in the midst of his covenant people. Well, Stephen's approach is going to go through the Old Testament in four periods, the first of which is the period of Abraham and the patriarchs. He's going to speak of them as he defends himself against the charge of blasphemy against the temple. Let's begin at verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs. Now here he is dealing with the principle of God being with his people apart from the temple. Well, first he, he points out that God's glory appeared to Abraham while he was still living in Mesopotamia. Abraham was a uh, a, a, a pagan idol worshiper. He's living in Mesopotamia. He, uh, in fact, Ur, where he was from, was prominent for its temple to the moon god. There's every reason to believe that he would have made sacrifices to the moon and been at the ziggurat with all the other people. And there, in that place, in the midst of all that, and what an important statement is, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. It wasn't some minimal revelation of God, but God appeared. By the way, this does suggest, and we're not told this in Genesis, we're going to get some information in Stephen that accords with some of the traditional Jewish materials, but because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's a very interesting information we learn that supplements the book of Genesis, namely that a theophany was given to Abraham, a vision of God in his glory. Now, what would that have been? Well, it's hard to know exactly, but we know what they were like elsewhere. I think of Isaiah 6, when the prophet Isaiah went into the temple and he saw Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, John 12 tells us that, in glory, surrounded by the seraphim. God revealed himself in glory to our father, Abraham. This did not happen in the temples. The idea is if you want to know God, if you want to see the glory of God, you see the glory of God in the rituals of the Jewish temple on Mount Zion. And Stephen says, but what about Abraham? 
He's a, he's a pagan living in Ur of the Chaldees in, in Mesopotamia, and God reveals his glory to him in a spectacular way. He, he spoke. God did not speak from Mount Zion, uh, sending a message across to Mesopotamia. No, God went to Mesopotamia, and he preached him. Now, very interestingly here, if you read Genesis, the end of Genesis 11 and the beginning of Genesis 12, you, you might get the impression that it was after they had left Mesopotamia, while Terah, his father, and Abraham were in Haran, that's along the way, that God called him there. It's not specified in the text of Genesis. And what we learn here is that, no, actually it was before that. In Mesopotamia, that God revealed this vision of glory to Abram. And it was after that they went to Haran, they sojourned there for a while, God called him again. And so first we have here this notion, and Stephen's going to repeat, this is a theme he's going to make, that God is revealing himself wherever his people are. He has his people, he has his elect, he has the, the, the subjects of his grace. And it's not dependent upon the temple building in any way. This notion that this is what God always designed is contradicted by his actual actions. And secondly, he points out that God accompanied Abram on his pilgrim journeys, Abraham was called to a pilgrimage. To, he, didn't, he, was a, he was not a buyer. He was a renter. He walked before God as a sojourner through the land, and God was with him wherever he went. If Abraham is a pilgrim and God is his God, then the God of Abraham is a pilgrim God. His presence is not tied to a location, but rather it is tied to his redemptive purpose for his people. He makes a point in verse 5 that Abraham's inheritance was not on earth. Yet he gave, verse 5, yet he gave him no inheritance in that. That's very fascinating. If you went to Abraham, and of course Hebrews 11 validates this, and you said, what is, what is, the, what is God promising you? Uh, he would have said correctly, the great promise of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, is the land and the seed, or rather the seed and the land. Go outside and number the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. Of course, Abraham and his wife didn't have any children. She was barren. They were now old. God said, it doesn't matter. I'm promising you offspring. And that's, that's the church in Jesus Christ, as Galatians is going to point out. Abraham's our father in faith. And he promises him a land. But how did Abraham understand that land? Abraham did not understand that land as the promised physical land of Canaan. Certainly not Jerusalem. Certainly not the Temple Mount. His inheritance was not in the land itself. Now Hebrews 11.10 tells us that he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now we have the benefit of the whole New Testament and we see in the book of Hebrews and in the book of Revelation, how does the book of Revelation show us how even now we're on this same pilgrim journey. We're looking forward to the future. And what will it be? It'll be the new heavens and the new earth. It'll be the, the, the people in the land, the, 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 the bride of Christ will dwell in the glorified temple city that is the, the regenerated cosmos. And there will be no sun or moon for the Lord will be their light and he will shine upon them. Abraham could have told them that although there was a time, there was a redemptive period when this temple building would serve a place, that was far from the end destination. That was far from the substance he was looking forward to. The same thing we should be doing, not the things of the earth, to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. 
There it is for Abraham. Now notice that the substance of God's relationship with Abraham was not a place, but the covenant. It's very significant when he says, Stephen says in verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. It is the inauguration of the covenant of grace. By the way, it's that covenant under which you and I find salvation. You, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved because he's going to keep his promise to Abraham. The offspring who who are in Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ will be saved together with the patriarch. It is the covenant. And the covenant, go back to Genesis 12, is that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You see, the real inheritance of the Old Testament people was not Mount Zion. It wasn't the temple building. It wasn't the ritual institution of the priesthood. It was the covenant with its promises, all of which would find their fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just his first coming, but ultimately in that second coming that we still await. For there is a new heavens and a new earth. So much for the testimony of Abraham concerning the temple. Now secondly, he moves to Joseph and Israel in Egypt. We'll start this at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now, when we move forward to the next redemptive era, the the patriarchs leading to Joseph and and the family of Jacob in Egypt, and God is with them there. God revealed himself. God spoke. God, he manifested his grace for salvation to Abraham in Mesopotamia, and now to Joseph and the family of Jacob while they were in Egypt. God's grace was not tied to a specific place but where his people dwelt. He points out that while they sinned against Joseph and sold him into slavery, God was with him. By the way, that is the Emmanuel. That's what the temple represents. God with us. That's Emmanuel. And God was with him. What the temple represented was made real to Joseph in Egypt, and he delivered him. I don't have time, but the greatness of the story of Joseph and how God supernaturally worked and how God gave him the ability to understand Pharaoh's dreams, just the marvelous way, and all the great things that God did in and for Joseph. And none of it had anything to do with the temple building, the priesthood, which didn't exist yet, the rituals. No, God was with his people, and he was doing so in fulfillment of the covenant promises that he made to Abraham. Now, he details three visits of Jacob and his sons, the 12 sons of of Israel, as they went to Egypt. First, there's a famine. They go down there. Genesis 39, second time they come down because Joseph revealed himself and he brings them back. The third time, after the sons know who Joseph is, they send back for Jacob. And yet God was continuing his redemptive journey. 
Uh, there had been a plot of land, and he, he, by the way, he conflates things here between the cave at Machpelah of Abraham and also the tomb in Shechem that Jacob had bought, where Joseph's body will be brought. But God brought them back. God, there was a redemptive journey. Notice it's a pilgrim journey, through, not in this world, but through this world to the home promised above. This is the message concerning God being with us from the testimony of Joseph. Now, the longest section of this sermon, not surprisingly, deals with Moses and the Exodus. One reason why Stephen maybe gives so much attention to Moses may be because of the charge that he was disrespectful towards Moses. Well, we'll see that he was anything but that. Let's begin reading at verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his brother uh, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. Uh, There came, as he did so, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, and he dared not to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, 
Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. I'll stop there as we begin to as we conclude the, the portion given to Moses. Now he handles the the record of the life of Moses in three phases. Um, you can divide Moses' life into three periods of forty years, and the first is his birth and upbringing until the age of forty. And of course, the real theme here is that of covenant promise. God remembered his promise to Abraham concerning his people. And so at the very time when the children of Israel, you get this in the early chapters of Exodus, the Israelites were growing numerically so fast that Pharaoh, this wicked man who no longer remembered Joseph, he was ordering that the, the male babies of Israel would be killed. And you know the story how uh, Moses was beautiful. By the way, this passage is interesting because both Exodus and the book of Hebrews simply say that he was saved because he was beautiful. And commentators say, now what does that exactly mean? Not just that he was good looking. Uh, one theory, it's actually the theory I hold to, is that there was something known about him, probably a revelation given about him that marked him not merely as a good looking boy, but as, as, a, as a redemptive figure. And, and that is confirmed in our text where verse 20 says that he was beautiful in God's sight. The idea was he was an appointed servant of God for the redemption of his people in fulfillment of his covenant promises. And God remembered his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He was, and for the first 40 years of Moses' life, He's raised as an Egyptian. He's raised in Egyptian culture. He's raised by Pharaoh's daughter, and yet he was blessed and protected by God. Why? Because he had a redemptive purpose for his people in Egypt. Now, the second 40 years of Moses' life begins, and we're told here, that he sees a group of, a couple of Israelites fighting, and he breaks them up. He ends up, actually, they're being oppressed by an Egyptian overseer, and he ends up slaying the Egyptian overseer in order to defend the Israelite. Those are his own people. The next day, he finds the two uh, Israelites fighting, and it becomes clear to him that he has been exposed, that he's in a rather vulnerable place. They mock him. Are you going to kill us like you did the overseer? And Moses realizes that he needs to go into exile. Now, Now, again, you have the pilgrim motif. This is the experience of God's people. It's not that of being settled uh, in, 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 a, in the eschatological fulfillment of all the promises. My friends, that is still not yet come. It is coming. But it's the, 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 the Sanhedrin had an over-realized eschatology. They thought the temple and the, and the beauty of the building and the ceremonies was the end of all ends. And, and Stephen said, no, no, it's always been this way. Moses goes off into exile, and, but what happens in exile? This is the last 40 years of his life. When Moses is 80 years old, he's shepherding the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, and God reveals himself in a display of glory greater than any that would ever be given in the temple. God appears to him in the burning bush. What a remarkable statement we have here of, of the, the revelation of God. Look at verse 
30, when he was 40 years old, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He drew near to look, and there came the voice of God. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And he trembled and dared not look. And the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, there is a sense that this statement just uh, remembrance of the burning bush forms the heart of Stephen's defense of this charge that he has been speaking blasphemy against the temple. Because one of the implications is the one that John Chrysostom makes, the great early church father. He's, he's preaching on this text. He says there's not a word of temple. There's not a word of sacrifice. There's not a word of the priesthood. And yet the burning bush is more wonderful than anything that was ever beheld within the Holy of Holies in the temple on Mount Sinai. And see, there is holy ground outside the holy land. And Moses uh, trembles before this revelation from God. Now, you know, God gives him his covenant name. I am that I am. From that, that becomes the tetragrammaton. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, often called Jehovah. God reveals himself at the burning bush in a way that is grander than ever would happen once the people were in the land of Canaan. The lesson is that God is everywhere. He is present to his people in their need. He reveals his glory out of covenant grace. The idea is of covenant fulfillment. This is the idea Stephen's wanted to get through to them. Forget the institutional way of thinking about Christianity. By the way, it's a message needed today. Christianity is not about church buildings. It's not about the institution. of the, They have their place if they're in accordance with God's will. But it's God's covenant faithfulness. He's keeping his promises. He's moving his people forward in the journey, not only their journeys, but the journey of his people until we get to the end of history, which will come in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there will be the settled place. Then the new heavens and the new earth will be the temple. And the people of God will be the temple in which God lives. God is present everywhere. He reveals his glory because of his faithfulness to his covenant. Well, the last section then concludes with David and Solomon as they have reference to the temple. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that drove, God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made from by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now here we come to the actual construction of first the tabernacle and then the temple. And he points out that it's good. It's according, it was done according, it's very interesting, according to the plan that was shown to Moses. Does that mean he, God showed him a physical architecture? I think the answer is yes. But more than that, he showed him the redemptive significance of the temple architecture. It was all about God making a way through the blood of the sacrifice of his, of his sinful pilgrim people to find their rest in his presence. 
That's what the temple was all about. He, he points out that God had not asked for a temple. It was David in his act of piety. He, he built a great palace for himself. This is, you find in 2 Samuel 7. And he wanted to build a house for the Lord. And, and the Lord says, well, you're not going to do it because you're a man of war. You're a man of blood, as First Chronicles points out. Solomon would build the house for the Lord. And yet, he's actually quoting here from the opening lines of Isaiah 66, but it's reciting the words spoken by Solomon himself in the prayer by which he dedicated the very temple building that they were now turning into an idol. What does he say? Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? What is the place of my rest? Solomon will point out, God is not contained by this building. God is he's the creator of heaven and earth. We're not building a building and putting God in the building so he'll be accessible to us. No, no, no. There, there's, there's a role. There's a symbolism to the temple. We, we respond to it by faith in the promises, the redemptive promises pointing to Christ. But Solomon himself had made the point, echoed by the prophet Isaiah, that, the, that God is too great to be contained in the temple. Well, what, notice what Stephen is saying, that... Yes, the temple had been good. There had been a place. It was according to God's instruction. And yet Scripture itself witnesses that God's presence can never be localized or contained in a building or an institution. Where is God's home? Here's the accumulated effect. Where, Where is God present? God's present with his people. God is with his people. Why? Because of his promises, because because his election He's present with them through his covenant relationship. In the fulfillment of the promises, he manifests himself. He redeems them. Like Joseph in his need, the Lord redeemed him. Like Israel in Egypt, the God was with them. Why? Because his covenant promises. Therefore, it was no offense. Here's his defense. It is no sin to say that the temple building that they worshipped, they didn't really worship God at the temple, they worshipped the temple. That that temple was not the end all and be all of God's redemptive purpose, which is what he'd been saying. It's what Jesus meant when Jesus said, tear down this temple in three days and I will, and I will raise it up in my resurrection. What's the point? That the, what, what the temple pointed to was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. It was fulfilled in the outpouring of Pentecost upon this apostolic church in the city of Jerusalem. God would dwell in his people, not in a house built of stone. In fact, as First Peter points out, we, the church, becomes a temple, the temple of the living God, and God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. A good reflection would be the words of William Cooper, This is a summation of the argument being made by Stephen in his hymn that says, Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek you, you are found, and every place is hallowed ground. So much for Stephen's defense of his blasphemy against the temple. Now, the second charge is that Stephen is a rebel against the law. And this will be a shorter recitation because we go back in and we pick out some pieces that he mentioned in there. And we can do it briefly because he's going to show, while he's giving that story, he's also going to show that the characteristic of the people of Israel, they took pride in their covenant, their ethnic and their covenant privilege, that they were the people of God. He says, but the defining characteristic throughout redemptive history has been the rebellious sin of Israel against the law of God, against Moses, against the promises of God. It starts with Joseph. 
And Joseph, in verse 9, is sold into slavery. That was a very wicked thing they did. And it was not out of character. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And particularly the reaction to Moses in Egypt, seeing one of them being wrong. He defended the oppressed man. He avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. He supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. And by the way, that does suggest that Moses had some revelation, maybe given through his parents, prior to all this, that he was to play the redemptive role. And so he's trying to do that in his own false way. But what happens? They, they quarreled. They, they reviled him. They accused him, who made you a judge and ruler over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? What's the characteristic of Israel? It is not Stephen who has a problem with the law of God. It's the people of God who have the problem. It's Israel that is characterized by the violation of God's word. And this, of course, comes to its culmination during the Exodus by the affair of the golden calf. It begins in verse 41, and they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. This is Amos 5, 25 to 27. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, in a conflated way, he's pointing out the witness of the prophets. We, we, we spent a couple of years studying the book of Jeremiah. We think about Jeremiah. Preach that famous temple sermon. How relevant to what's going on here. Because what Jeremiah says, your problem is you've made an idol of the temple. And they were characterized by rebellious, sinful idolatry in the golden calf and the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Stop trusting in the institution, the fact that you've got this building that the Jews of Jeremiah's time believed as long as the building was there, God would never do anything wrong to them. And they're living wicked lives. They're sinning in every kind of way, especially through injustice. They're worshiping idols, and they believe so long as they have the building there, as long as the priests are going through the motion, everything's good. And that's essentially what's going on under the Sanhedrin in Stephen's time. He's pointing out, don't forget the Babylonian exile. It's not I who have merely prophesied the end of this building. God has already destroyed it once. In the days of Jeremiah, prophesied by Amos, he sent you, he sent the people of God into exile in Babylon. You see, the upshot of this is that the Bible, this is, this is the confrontation he's making with them. The great reality that they're rejecting and the reason they're so upset is they don't realize that the Bible teaches a religion of sinners who need to be saved by the promised Savior announced beforehand by Moses. And he, he points out. Moses had prophesied the prophet greater than himself. This Jesus Christ, is, you're saying I'm opposed to Moses. Moses prophesied that a prophet greater than himself would come. And when he comes, you should listen to him. You should trust him. There's a promised Messiah. And this is what the Old Testament teaches. We're convicted by God. Israel stands convicted. Every generation after another, they're convicted by God. And the disrespecters of Moses was not Stephen. It was the religious leaders who crucified Jesus Christ, who is that promised Savior, announced beforehand 
by Moses. Listen to his conclusion. You stiff-necked people. Now, that's the characteristic often given in the Old Testament of the people of God, of the religious leaders like the Sanhedrin. They were stubborn and hard-hearted towards God. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. That uncircumcision means that though outwardly you're, you're Jews, you're actually Gentiles. You're strangers. Remember the covenant of circumcision. Oh, you have circumcised bodies, but your hearts are not circumcised. You are not the heirs of Abraham, although you're genetically connected to him. You're not members of his family of faith. Then he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. What does he mean by that? That they slew the prophets. By the Holy Spirit, he means the word of God that was preached. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, Stephen's defense, his speech, is not merely a defense of himself. Oh, it is more than adequate. He's blasphemed against the temple. No, he's merely proclaim what the bible itself says about the role of the temple in redemptive history it points forward to christ and it needs to go away now that christ has come now the holy spirit has come we believe in jesus we repent and believe and his spirit is in our hearts and yes christian people again i mentioned what this would mean to luke a gentile christian God is present as he was in Mesopotamia, as he was in Egypt, as he was in Babylon. So he will be in Corinth and in Rome, wherever people call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There they will behold thy mercy seat. The Holy Spirit will dwell amongst them. He fully exonerates himself. And moreover, he is not the one who has violated and rebelled against the law of Moses. It is the Sanhedrin. And Bruce Milne says the point Stephen is making is that they, these supremely privileged recipients of God's very word and law, they had committed the blasphemy of disobeying it in the murder of Jesus Christ. Now we can well imagine that following the example of Peter, that Stephen probably was very soon going to point out, repent and believe and you will be forgiven. But those words never came. Because at this point when he exposes as the gospel of john says what they people what they hated about jesus was that the light exposes the darkness because their deeds were evil he shows the fraud of their self-righteousness and therefore they stoned him well i mentioned at the beginning of my sermon how exciting it is in a criminal trial when the defender takes the stage and my mental picture of this comes from the old television series perry mason most of you are probably too young to have watched perry mason it's a little repetitive but it's always good he takes the case and he always there's a always every episode pretty much concludes with perry mason it's not the defendant he has on the stand it's the accuser he has on the stand and he he takes them apart and it ends up that the defendant is innocent as Stephen is innocent. In fact, the accuser himself is the one who committed the crime. Very dramatic. And I want to conclude tonight by saying, don't think that merely it is the Sanhedrin that is convicted by this sermon. We, if we sit in, the, in their place, we first sit in the chair of the religious leaders who are condemned by the word of God. Because this is the, that's what Stephen's saying. The message of the Bible is to expose the idolatry of sin and evil, of people who break the law of God. Saving religion starts there. And how do we respond to that? 
They responded when he exposed their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy. They responded by slaying him. We'll see. We'll pick up the passage in our next Acts sermon. Uh, they, They put him to death. And yet the Bible gets the same message to us. If we say we are without sin, we merely deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And I have in my mind that wonderful couple of verses, three verses in Romans chapter 3, which I like to point out is the very crux of the gospel. Because in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul begins with bad news after bad news. And he, he begins, the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men. And he works it out in chapter 1 against the, the pagan uh, uh, sinner. Then in chapter 2 against the religious sinner. Then he sums it up in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you realize? This is what they didn't realize. And for them to be believed, and the temple stood in the way because it became a, a form of false righteousness. Church traditions can do the same to us today. I go to church. I don't need to be saved. Oh, realize what a sinner you are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, one thing I love about that verse, Romans 3.23, it's the very end of the bad news in the book of Romans. And what happens next, what Paul says in Romans 3.24 and 25, turns the bad news into the good news. Everything prior to Romans 3.24 is bad news culminating in this conviction. It's the conviction that we must own. They would not own it. And so they slew him. What about us? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the testimony of the, of the patriarchs and the prophets and the fathers and of David, uh, the, the biblical history that all have sinned. But here's the good news. But they are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, Stephen, he was probably going to get there, but he didn't get to go there. What Paul is saying, you know, the most important thing that happened in the temple was the shedding of the blood. And it was not the blood of a lamb or a goat or a bull that forgave sin. It was pointing forward, but it was speaking to sinners we, if we want to be saved, we, put, we must put aside the idolatry and self-righteousness and pretense. We must look to the blood of the Lamb who was slain. And we must say, I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I believe in the promise of God, that faithful covenant-keeping God. He brought the long prophesied Savior, the long appointed servant of God, who would lay down his life for my sins, and I will seek propitiation by his blood. There is no need any longer for a temple building. We look in faith to the cross, the propitiation by his blood, that sacrifice on our behalf that turns aside the the wrath of God, and we receive it by faith. Well, if we anticipate where Stephen was going, we know how we will respond. I'm sorry to say we sang this hymn this morning. I picked a different hymn. It's not a bad one, but let me conclude my sermon with Augustus Toplady's words because it's the right response to the message Stephen was giving. The rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. This is how we respond. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Father, we thank you that as Stephen was trying to communicate to the Sanhedrin 
And the message of the Bible is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who died for sinners. And Father, we thank you for this reminder that you're with your people wherever we are, that you, you rescue us, you strengthen us, you succor us in, in, our, in our woes. You reveal yourself in times of darkness. But Father, we know that this is all going forward to Calvary where your son died for us because we are poor sinners. Father, don't let any of us stumble on that stumbling block like the Jews of old in the Sanhedrin. Don't let us demand signs and to take pride in institutions, ecclesial or otherwise. But rather let us bow before the cross, confess our sins and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, be mercy seated towards me, a sinner. And how wonderful it is that Jesus says that when we do, we go home justified. We become your people. And by the outpouring of your spirit, you dwell within us. Together as your church, we become the living temple. And you dwell in us wherever we are by your Holy Spirit. We pray with thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.